Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host Dr. Wasim Akhtar. My guest today is Gerd Gagarinzer, Director Emeritus at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, Director of the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the University of Potsdam. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago and a visiting professor at the University of Virginia. He has trained judges, physicians and managers in decision making and understanding risk. Today we are going to discuss his new book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World: Why Human Intelligence Still Beats Algorithms. Professor Gerd Gagarinzer, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. Today's Artificial intelligence applications work well for narrowly focused and highly specialized tasks. In the book you make a case that artificial intelligence is good for stable and predictable environments, but when artificial intelligence is applied to environments that are not stable, that are not predictable, it does not perform well in such environments. Help us to understand what do you mean by a stable and unstable environment? So uh, when we talk about AI, at the moment we are talking about deep neural artificial networks, and because there are other types of AI, um, a deep neural network is a statistical machine that looks at correlations, say between pixels or other units, and a stable problem is best illustrated by games like chess and Go or industry applications where you have routine talks. And this is an environment where statistics is at its best. So that's what I mean with a stable world. It's also the environment where big data really helps you. Because if the future is like the past, then you should fine tune your algorithms on the past. Now, if that's not the case, if the future isn't like the past, if it changes in unforeseeable ways, and then you should not fine-tune on the past because you will overfit. So, and then you need to simplify. And the human mind evolved to simplify, not to fine-tune on the past because we were most of the time, facing unstable, ill-defined problems. For instance, the behavior of other people like you and me. <laughs> or the behavior of certain viruses like the flu or corona. And these are uh, situations where uh, complex algorithms and big data don't do well. And actually, we have shown in our research that, for instance, predicting the flu, which Google uh, flu trends tried and failed with big data, can be done much better with a single data point. So these are things in an unstable environment. The past doesn't matter very much. It actually misleads you. And so that general principle is that what I call the stable world principle. If you have a stable world or an approximation, then use complex algorithms, lots of data, and then the usual story that you hear actually pays. But if it's unstable, like the behavior, if you want to predict the behavior of people, or the behavior of coronaviruses, so those who change, then don't do that. Use simple algorithms, and that's what the human mind anyhow does. So, in a way, uh, you are challenging this uh, common principle or common view held by people in uh, big data analytics and in, in the field of artificial intelligence who say that the more data that you have, the better training you can achieve. So, you are suggesting that for complex and unpredictable systems, uh, this hypothesis does not hold. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, here's an example with 
which I think many people or some are familiar. So think about IBM's Watson. IBM's Watson uh, became famous in a game, Jeopardy, where the machine beat the best human players. And that was a, a marvelous development. But it doesn't mean that the same machine does well in an unstable, uncertain world. And that was what many hadn't understood. So um, after the big success of Watson in the game, Jeopardy, uh, IBM CEO Eugenio Rometti announced the moonshot. So in healthcare, Watson would revolutionize everything from drug development to cancer therapy. And at the end, maybe we wouldn't need any doctors anymore. So uh, the many clinics bought Watson's advice. So Watson Oncology was the first one. And uh, then it turned out, of course, that the promises of IBM's marketing department could not be fulfilled by the machine. And uh, for instance, N.H. Anderson, the well-known uh, cancer clinic in the U.S., uh, spent about $62 million uh, for Watson until they finally fired Watson. And uh, meanwhile, IBM admitted that Watson is at the level of a first-year medical student. So it is certainly the best-paid first-year medical student ever. And after further critique, uh, uh, Watson became sold in parts, including, I believe, the patient data. So, and, uh, so that's, that's an example which uh, makes clear. So the same type of computer can do marvelous things in a stable world, and actually the, the rules of Jeopardy had slightly be amended so that Watson has a good chance, but that doesn't mean it can do everything, and certainly not. And the rest is was marketing hype. And it's important to recognize marketing hype. IBM's Watson has also sold for investment advice. So if Watson would be the great investor, IBM wouldn't be in the financial troubles it is. Your research also focuses on decision-making and understanding risk. When I was reading this book, and when we think about artificial intelligence, there are two different aspects. We can think about artificial intelligence from pure research point of view, that where we should apply artificial intelligence, where it will work and where it may not work very well. And you have given some information on that. But then in the book, you start talking about the other aspects of artificial intelligence also, where we consume artificial intelligence, where ordinary people consume artificial intelligence, where uh, advertisements are being placed on our desktop, uh, um, uh, on, on the pages that we are uh, uh, visiting uh, and, and other recommender systems. And this is where I notice that you changed the tone and the tone is more about risk understanding and risk assessment. And you are trying to guide the readers that we should be aware of these risks. Is this correct that you are then trying to guide us about the risks? It has always been my job huh, to study how people deal with risks and also to help people to understand the risk better. Mm. And this similar problems has been uh, always around. Huh? So, uh, and th I think the key problem is that we do not teach people in school, at the universities, or in the media, to understand the risks and who is behind the risks. And, and people often fear the wrong things. And it's not because we are misfired. We could just explain everyone. Uh, so what the chances are. 
so uh, people fear terrorism. Yeah, hmm? understandable. But huh? if you if you have a choice between uh, uh, if you ask what's the chance being killed by a terrorist in the Western world, we are not talking about Afghanistan. Hmm? Mm. Uh, in the last ten years, compared to being killed by a driver who doesn't pay attention, for instance, because he or she is on her smartphone or tech, writing text. So it's so much higher the chance that you'll be killed by a distracted driver, including that you kill yourself, than a terrorist. In the US, it's even the case that it's more likely being shot by a, 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 a little child than by a terrorist. So, uh, this is the general point. And the, <clears throat> the same thing uh, is uh, in uh, the digital world. The digital world changes us. And also there are quite a number of uh, tech industries who try to manipulate us. And one needs to be aware of this thing. So for instance, <clears throat> if you had to wait for a long time in a phone line. Why? Yeah, maybe an algorithm calculated that you have a low customer value. So, or if you are in bed, it's Saturday evening with your partner and watch TV. And the next day you, you get on your smartphone advertisement for Viagra or other medication, why? Ask yourself why. The answer is probably you bought a smart TV and didn't read the privacy policy. So if you would have read, read the privacy policy of Samsung, it said, do not conduct personal conversations in front of the smart TV because it will be recorded. And with everything else that's being recorded, sent to third parties to be analyzed. So these are just a few examples that we need to wake up and see how the world is changing and ask ourselves, what can we do about it? And do we want this change? In the book, uh, you want the readers to understand that these risks are out there in the digital world. And because uh, uh, understanding risk is your research area and, and, and you provide training. So you are trying to guide the reader that we should be aware of these risks, as you just mentioned. Now, let us talk about recommender systems and uh, uh, and let us dig deep on these. The way these companies are making millions, perhaps billions of dollars, and the revenue is based on the advertisements that they are putting on our screens. And we are just uh, just there uh, as, as a commodity. The users are there just as a commodity. And they are not even aware of that. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about these things, these, okay. this, this business of advertisement. Yeah. So the commodity issue can be understood by an analogy. So... Uh, Think about that in your hometown, there's a coffee house that offers free coffee. So everyone goes there and enjoys free coffee and talk with your friends. And it's so wonderful, except that in the tables, there are microphones and on the walls are video cameras that record every word you say and to whom. And the coffee house is full with salespeople who constantly interrupt you and offer you personalized products. So this is roughly the situation you are in when you're on Facebook, Instagram, Google, and so on, and other platforms. And the important thing is that in this coffee house, you are not the customer. The customer are the salespeople who pay for your coffee. And you are the product. 
precisely your attention, your time. And that's a way to understand the situation. And it also puts the finger on the business model. So the business model is very different from all business models we had before. Pay with your data, not pay with your money. And it gives us also an idea how we could change that, how we could become the customer again, who has a saying and is not being interrupted all the time and recorded and analyzed and doesn't know what's being done with data. So that means the solution would be, let us pay for our coffee, as it was always. So we get rid of the salespeople, and the coffee house doesn't need the salespeople to pay this. We want to pay. So uh, then one might ask, good, yeah, what would that cost? Hmm. So I've done a calculation for the entire uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, yeah. uh, <clears throat> corporation with all their programs, Instagram included, and others. So if you would uh, pay Zuckerberg, the entire revenue he's getting from advertisement, which is 97%. Now we pay 100% from our pocket. What would that amount per month? The answer is roughly $2 a month. That is a coffee. Yeah. And we would have back our liberty. And most important, the our personal data would not go to, say, health insurers, who then, depending on a raise of the premium, hmm. not to life insurers or others. And also... Uh, we uh, would, we wouldn't have, or many people wouldn't suffer the consequences. For instance, um, there are thousands of psychologists and engineers whose job is to find out how to keep everyone on the platform. And if the person is out, how to make it desire to come back. And the, uh, I'm, as a psychologist, I'm particularly interested in these tricks. And the history of Facebook is a good example. So, at the early days of Facebook, yeah, you, you were kind of, you posted something and looked at something of your friends, and then a few days later, you might have looked again. There was no urge constantly check. And then, of course, that wasn't very good for the business model of Facebook. The business model means you are the product. So then a number of changes were made. The news feed, where certainly it was, you, you didn't send uh, your, your message when sent to your friends, but to everyone. Mm -hmm. And hundred thousands protested against that, but the mentality of people changed. They suddenly liked it if people that I don't even know hmm, were commenting and giving likes. And the like was the next, the next important point. Because for a comment, you have to read and may uh, find out whether it's ironic or real, but a like is a like. You just count it. Hmm. And the like is uh, very much has the same function as uh, if you know uh, the psychologist B.F. Skinner, who was uh, who was once of the most famous psychologists and also the most controversial. And he showed that his pigeons hmm, can be made picking all the time or just picking sometimes, depending on the reinforcement schedule. Now, what is that? Hmm? So... Uh, if uh, a pigeon uh, knows that it there's food every every hour, 
So the pigeon goes there and shortly before the hour starts pecking until it gets food and then relaxes. But Skinner did intermittent reinforcement. So that means that food can come anytime. And that makes this, the pigeon picking all the time and faster and faster, um, as long as it's hungry. Now, uh, the same technologies were used for the users. So that means uh, in the old times of Facebook, yeah, you would just see sometimes one. But with the likes, the likes are like the food pellets, small units hmm, that you can count. Hmm. And that are not enough yeah, to make you, yeah, hmm, uh, <clears throat> not enough to not, not to stay hungry. And uh, so, uh, and that changed the behavior and the mentality of many users. And they have to check all the time, like the pigeon picks, hmm? whether there's something alike or not. And uh, that's, a, that's also one of the major disadvantages that wouldn't be necessary if the business model would be pay with your money. Hmm? But it's necessary if the business model is pay with your data. And the, these consequences, including then the other things that have been demonstrated, that depression is on the rise, suicidal uh, thoughts are on the rise, people more and more care about their appearance. They compare them uh, all day with others. And this kind of um, problems wouldn't be as strong. And if I just come back to this point that you made that if we decide to pay, then this model that there will be uh, advertisements, targeted advertisements sent to us without we, we, we being willing to receive them. So if we decide to pay, it can change. But if we look at the bigger picture, do you think that people will consider paying? Majority will consider paying? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. We've done studies on that. Yeah. And uh, there's a phenomenon that's called the privacy paradox. So, um, the let's start with Germany. I live in Berlin, and Germans should be uh, those who, from their own past, know best what surveillance means. So, that has been former East Germany, the Stasi, or if you go further back in German history. The Stasi would have been, yeah, I guess, overwhelmed with joy if they would have had this technology. So, uh, so I did over several years a survey in Germany with a representative sample and we asked them, what is your greatest concern about digital life? And one of the greatest concerns was that people don't know what's being done with the data and who sees that. Now, you would assume now that they would be willing to pay something. So to change the business model, if they could. So I asked him, how much would be willing, how much would, how much would you be willing to pay every month? for all social media, if that would be possible, in order to keep your personal data. Now, think about yourself, how much would you be willing to pay? Here's the answer for Germany. 75% of Germans said, I'm not willing to pay a single penny or cent. And the others were willing to pay something, yeah? But here, that's the privacy paradox. You say you're concerned. You're not willing at the same time to pay. And uh, so your question is well taken. Given that our mentality has been changed, that we are used to getting free coffee in the free, in the coffee house, and we're used to all the surveillance, and we want to have it, at least 
in behavior not willing to pay anything. The same situation holds generally in studies worldwide. And it's particularly Western studies and the Anglo-Saxon world, like Australia and New Zealand, where very few are willing to pay. And those countries where the majority, or at least many more, are willing to pay are not in Europe and not in the US. These are China, the United Arab Emirates, and countries which know better. Staying with this research that you just mentioned, you said that it came out in the research that uh, people were not aware that what was happening with the data. Maybe that is the root cause and people still feel that, oh, they are getting a free coffee without realizing what they are paying with, with their personal data is yeah. bigger price than two euros that you mentioned or two dollars yeah. that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. At least people say they are concerned. But you're certainly right that most really uh, don't know very much what's going on. And there's a reason. The tech companies are not necessarily interested that you would find out what's going on. So um, I'll give you some data on that. So we all think that we understand the digital world, more or less. Okay, so let's start. The uh, a study of CEOs of the major large companies looked at their CV, at everything that's being documented about the people, and could not find uh, any uh, evidence for digital knowledge in over 90% of the CEOs. Okay. But these are those who then think they're under pressure to buy certain products without being able to determine whether they work. An example is Watson's IBM for oncology. So, second, what about journalists? A study in the UK looked at all articles in a year about AI. And from the uh, more tabloids to uh, The Guardian and also BBC. And overall, 60% of the reports about AI were written by journalists who basically repeat the PR of the industry hmm? without any ability or willingness to judge that. So, uh, what, what do you, you can see this all the time. For instance, take again Watson's IBM. When Watson for Oncology was advertised, it was all over the media. When it was closed down and sold in parts, the media are very quiet. And the same happened with Google Flu Trends. That was trumpeted in the media when it was closed down. The media were very quiet. Now, third, uh, so what about digital natives? Now you might think, yeah, they grew up and they understand what's going on. Digital natives certainly can switch from Instagram uh, to the next platform faster than most of us, and they can uh, write messages in between and uh, listen to music and do multitasking. But can they uh, evaluate whether a website they're reading is trustworthy? or it's just a manipulative uh, website that gets fake news to them. A study in Stanford looked at over 3,000 high school students and undergraduates and gave them websites and asked them, find out. Yeah. What's the source? Whether it is a trustworthy source? The result was that 96 couldn't do it. 96% couldn't do it. And the interesting thing is that uh, digital technology actually enables us to find out much faster than with a, a pamphlet. Hmm? 
And so one of the techniques they should know, but most don't know, is called lateral reading. Lateral reading means the following. So you look at a website, a website that, for instance, tries to convince you that uh, minimum wage is not a good idea. So you don't read it from beginning to the end. Lateral reading means you just read until you know what it's about and stop and go into about us, find out who's there and then leave the site and go around and you need some kind of experience to find out uh, how you can get uh, to who is behind it. And these kind of techniques are not known to most digital natives. And so um, there are just illustrations that there's a certain kind of blindness about what's going on. And sometimes also willful blindness. So some people don't even want to know who is behind the website. They just want to maybe confirm what they already believe. That's a dangerous thing. When we talk about misinformation and disinformation, I think a very good example is that uh, what happened during the Brexit campaign. Yeah. And you share in the book that Boris Johnson raised few concerns and uh, I will use the gentler word here. They, they were untrue. Uh, th- yeah. Those problems were not even <coughs> even being mentioned anywhere. And he just raised those with the British public and used them that we have to get Brexit done. Well, Brexit got done. He became prime minister. He was rewarded. But nobody asked the question, well, well that was not a fact. That was untrue. <coughs> Yeah, there's an entirely well-documented story about uh, about uh, Johnson, where he already, when he was a kind of journalist, you know, just made up facts and uh, facts about the EU and what terrible things the EU is doing, uh, which were all not true. And it's a good example for, on the one hand, politicians who are untrustworthy and actually disseminate lies knowingly. And also more worrying uh, are people, people who have somehow lost the ability to distinguish between facts and fake news or even the motivation to distinguish between them and go for something else. And so what's needed here is um, bring people back into the enlightenment. That are not just party of someone or not just geared from outside by opinions and wrong stories about whatever. So, and, uh, and, that, that really worries me. It's, it's what worries me not so much are politicians like Trump and Johnson. We will always have these kind of people. What worries me is the immense mass of ordinary people who no longer uh, is able to check facts and, and get an independent judgment. And also often not notices that. Targeted advertisements and when you are searching something on Google and YouTube and the videos that are presented to you just to nudge you in certain directions Mm -hmm. and the advertisement. So that's something that we have been discussing for past perhaps 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But then situation is even becoming more interesting where we want these digital technologies and algorithms to find uh, find our partners for ourselves, to find <laughs> find love for us. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you discuss this um, uh, in detail in the book. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful story. And so um, there are so-called love algorithms. So... Uh, they are secret. So uh, they are used by so-called serious 
online uh, dating sites where you send in a profile that can be range a hundred questions, can be fewer, and then the profile is compared with all the other profiles that are <clears throat> that are uh, of a proper age and have a few other constraints, and then a matching value is calculated. And uh, then you have a kind of choice between the, you basically recommended the best fitting partners. The question is, how good are these algorithms? And interestingly, I have tried, I've contacted a number of these companies and asked them for, uh, would you willing I'm, I said I'm writing a book on that. Um, would you be willing to, to let me know how many customers you have? Hmm? How many customers actually then find through your service the ideal partner? Hmm? How many don't? Hmm? And in what time? And the usual things. Hmm? The typical answer I got um, sent me in the questions in written. So I sent them in in written. Hmm? The next answer was, uh, we will not answer half of your questions. And this was particularly all of those where, where you could find out what the success rate is. And I'm still waiting to get the answers for the other half of the questions. So it's absolutely secrecy. So then I did some research. And uh, the, the sites in the US or in the UK and in uh, Germany, they converge on something like that. Um, out of 100 people who are paying for a year, five roughly can expect to find the ideal partner, 95 not. So you can do a little calculation. You have to pay and wait for maybe 10 years to have a 50-50 chance. And that's a reasonable way to see, and then you can compare it with the traditional methods. And uh, studies show that traditional methods, such as uh, just going in a chat room and find people with similar hobbies, or uh, getting a dog and go out on the street huh, and find other dog lovers, are equally effective. And you won't have so many negative false alarms. Uh, to deal with, which sometimes takes some time to find out. Yeah. So, uh, so that's one side of the business. But the more interesting side is that the algorithms, they change us. So it's not this just an assistance system to get faster to a potential partner, but they have changed how we feel about courtship. So many people, even if they have what they say, the ideal partner found over a site, they continue checking. They're still on Tinder or on others, and then it's like automatic. You always have this access to everything. We just go on and go on and go on. And that also goes along with a change in how you think about a partner. And rather than thinking a partner is one of two, and if it goes wrong, you are responsible equally, and you need to think about the other person and try to be kind to her or him. It's now more an optimization business. You want to have the optimal partner. And it's just about her or him, no longer about you. And many people think about the entire thing is like in marketing. I have a story of a friend of mine in that who is also a, a professor of psychology, and he went on one of the sites, and he got uh, a, a woman who sent him the picture. And when he met her, 
in a coffee house, he didn't recognize her. And she explained that it wasn't, she didn't send him a photo of her. She sent him a photo she found attractive. Hmm? It's marketing. Hmm? So you do everything to get the attention. And he learned a few weeks later, she had changed her photo. Now it's another woman she found more attractive. Mm -hmm. The entire constellation changes. And the ultimate way is also an interesting, namely, uh, there is a um, Black Mirror episode where the future of dating is there. So in this future, it's like a recommender system. You get a recommendation of a single person, if you're a man of a woman, and it's, it's, it's in the traditional heterosexual thing, and, um, and you have no choice. And it also gives you an expiration date. So after five years, that's it. Or maybe just after five weeks. And so that means the decision-making is taken out of your hands. And we do have more and more people who are willing to give their decisions over to recommender systems. And we also have popular bestseller authors who tell us that's the best thing we can do. Read, Mm -hmm. for instance, Harari's books, which has a a low-fact-based enthusiasm that AI could be so much better than everything what we do. Only a person who doesn't know statistics and how the machines operate can have this religious face. And uh, he's not the only one. I don't want to single him out. It's just we have an entire series of bestseller authors who basically function as representatives of marketing for the tech companies. Hand over to Google all your data and hand over to Facebook all your data and should be grateful because then you get great advice. And if you don't follow the advice, you're stupid. That's the future. And we also need to start getting smart ourselves to not fall prey into this game. Going back to few points that you made at the start of the conversation and just uh, digging deep on the technical stuff now, you are saying that uh, these AI systems are usually based on neural networks and they are kind of statistical calculation machines. They will find some correlation, will try to predict something. And you are saying that uh, for um, environments where predictability is not as high uh, as in uh, stable systems, we should use other mechanisms. What yeah. what other mechanisms you are alluding to? Are you alluding to heuristics and these type of uh, approaches? Yes. Yeah. I'm alluding to heuristics. Heuristics are also algorithms. So I'm, I've studied heuristics since many times, but they are simple and robust. So give you an example. Uh, let's take Google flu trends. So Google uh, developed a big data algorithm based on uh, uh, hundreds of millions of search terms and, and algorithms. And in order to predict the uh, flu-related doctor visits in certain regions, which is a good idea to know that, uh, because then you know where the flu is going. But as I said before, it's not a stable world and it won't work. So new things happen like the swine flu. And then big data doesn't help because it misleads you. The swine flu came in the summer and the Google flu trends learn from big data that in the summer flu is low, in the winter high, and so it cannot adjust. So what we, um, uh, we published an alternative algorithm Uh, This is what I call psychological AI. So you look at how people make judgment, take it seriously, and develop simple algorithms. 
that work in an uncertain world. So we know from human memory that it forgets. And that has a reason. Because much of the past is no longer relevant. So we constructed an algorithm that only takes the most recent data point. So the doctor related, uh, the, sorry, the flu related doctor visits last week and predicted next week it's the same. So that's one data point. And it's informed by psychology. And it can steer around. If the swine flu happens, it can go along with the new situation. Big data can't. It's like a big ship that cannot steer really well. So, and to make it short, over the entire eight years that Google flu trends ran, uh, the simple heuristic that just looked at one data point predicted the flu much better than Google flu trends big data analysis. And the error was reduced to about half. And it held for all the revisions the Google engineers made. And it's also interesting, the first revision they made, which they let us know what they did, is so they had an algorithm with 45 variables. The algorithm is secret, and it failed. What do you do? According to our research, what you do is make it simpler because you have too much estimation error in that situation. No, they made it more complex. They increased it to 160 variables. So here you can see that uh, even smart people don't always understand that you can't fight uncertainty by making things more complex. You need to make it sufficiently simple and robust and then you can actually predict better. When we talk about AI, we say that um, it's purely mathematical, it's purely statistical, and there is no common sense there. Are you trying to introduce uh, something similar to that? Yeah. Um, the common sense is a more general problem. So here the common sense would mean, in the example I just gave, that that you would understand that it makes no point, yeah? to use big data in a situation where suddenly things can change. So it's like making five-year plans for the next five years. Yeah, as a joke. Huh? If you want to make mm. God laugh, hmm? tell him your plans. <laughs> so in that situation, and but more general, common sense. So the ability to know things without really being able to explain that. It's also often called intuition. It's the hardest thing for an AI to learn. We do not know how to bring common sense in either deep neural networks, how they could learn it by themselves, or how to program them in more rule-based AI. We do not know how this. And Unless there is, and certainly uh, getting uh, more and more computational power into deep neural networks is not the route to getting towards human intelligence. It's not. It would need a total revolution of software engineering. Nobody knows what that would like. If we would understand ourselves, we could program a computer. But we are the mystery to our consciousness. Very interesting. Uh, let me come back to this point uh, when you say that there are many authors there and there are many journalists there who are just uh, uh, giving us this information all the time that AI will mm. will solve all the problems and there will be fantastic AI. I think almost uh, for past 10 years, we are reading this and hearing this in media that uh, autonomous vehicles will be out just uh, maybe in six months and one year. And these uh, things don't happen. And you have discussed this in the book. But what are your projections? My view is there will, no, there will be no self-driving cars. It's a marketing hype. And one of the last person who trumpets that is Elon Musk. So why? First, if I've talked with many people who develop uh, uh, automized cars, 
And uh, the key problem is uncertainty. So uh, let's let's first define what a self-driving car is, because there's lots of ambiguity. A self-driving car is, according to the international classification, a level five car. There are five levels. Level one is a single system like a distance control that we had 30, 40 years ago. Level two is a combination of different single systems into a bigger job, like automatic parking. That's the cars you buy today, level two. Level three would mean a car that can actually do everything a human driver does, but still needs a human driver to pay attention if something goes wrong. And uh, so that's the future. Uh, level five, the self-driving car, is a car that can do, that can do, uh, that, sorry, level five is a car that can drive safely without a human paying attention or even without any driver's seat, under all yeah, uh, con driving conditions. And that's the stable world principle suggests that's not possible. And the greatest problems are human drivers, because they're not very predictable. So what will happen, in my opinion, is something much more interesting than self-driving cars, namely level four cars. A level four car is a car that drives by itself without a human paying attention, but only in restricted areas and well-prepared areas. And here is where the principle comes in. In order to get out most of AI, we need to adapt. In that case, we need to redesign parts of cities or entire cities or highways so that these uh, automized cars, level four, can drive safely, which will include that humans are no longer allowed to drive in these areas because we create uncertainty. So we have to create a stable world so that we can actually get uh, that out. And it's not uninteresting. So think about that maybe in 20 years, uh, in, in your city, the streets have been rebuilt that only uh, autonomous level four cars will drive there. And there are walls that keep bicyclists and everyone out. And there are separate uh, ways for cyclists and pedestrians and whatever it's on the street. And uh, these uh, cars will drive safely, probably very slowly, that nothing goes wrong. And they may bring you to faster public transport, like trains. Hmm? And that's a reasonable alternative. And it's actually doable. But it really needs that we change. We are not on the streets anymore, driving. And also we change our cities. So that they, and you can imagine that then in 20 years, a, uh, a young kid might ask you, Dad, is it true that when you were young, people like you were on the steering wheel and killing other people? <laughs> so that's what I think is a realistic future. And you could also see an alternative that you could rebuild a city, not so much around cars, but as it's done in the Netherlands, around biking or around public transport. And you can get any of these combinations, but the uh, vision of self-driving cars is, in my opinion, marketing hype. Good funds and also attention. And this nicely brings me to my next question that you suggest that we should change and we should adopt yeah. so that AI and human engagement is aligned 
and these systems work well. So, so we have to change. We have to adopt. Uh, talk to us about this bit that yeah. you discuss in the book. So the, uh, the car example is one that makes very clear that if we want to have this kind of autonomous cars, we have to adapt. In general, we need to think about whether we want that. But the, you get AI works best if we are predictable, if we become predictable. And also the environment is predictable. So we need to decide whether we want that. Or we can just uh, going sleepwalking into surveillance. And that's part of it. Because if we want to become predictable, then someone needs to surveil us and also manipulate us. And that's already being done. In uh, the, the, the algorithms, so the recommended algorithms at YouTube, they steer you in certain directions and not necessarily in the one that is the best or of most interest of you, but for the, they are paid by advertising companies. That means uh, the algorithms try to maximize your time they want to keep you, to glue you, to not, even if you want to leave, to be there. And that is done by getting over, the, recommending more and more exciting things, and exciting often means yeah, fake news and politically extreme situations. So you can see, here's also a problem. The moment you would pay yourself, yeah, that problem wouldn't be as strong. And in general, what I also worry about is, is uh, that we sleepwalk in surveillance. So we already have a situation where your uh, smart TV records everything you do. If you have a smart home, it's basically getting all data of you, where you are, with whom you are, when you are there, and so. And uh, we also have a system where people are just now, yeah, used to score everyone else, the Uber driver, yeah, or the, or the, the, the guest, hmm? restaurants, and an entire industry with faked uh, <clears throat> scoring systems. And people in the West, when they look at China, at the Chinese social credit system, they most say, oh, God, no. That's China. Uh, things got beyond the West. So for those who don't know the system, the idea is, it's like uh, what's in the US, FICO. So you have a, a, a score for your financial trustworthiness. Uh, the Chinese social credit system has a score for everything, all of your behavior, including political and social behavior. If you watch certain uh, videos, or given search terms like Dalai Lama, your score goes down. If you visit your old parents, score goes up. If you have friends with low scores, your goes down. And so many have already decided to unfriend those with low scores. And life is about paying attention and increasing your social credit score. And there are goodies for that. For those who are, have a high score, they maybe get uh, preferred and faster treatment at the hospital. And those with low scores, uh, they uh, may not be allowed to purchase plane tickets. And we have seen that 10,000 of Chinese were not allowed to uh, purchase plane tickets or um, uh, bullet train tickets, or your children are not allowed to go to the best private schools. So this is a a system of surveillance that is mostly based on the digital abilities and also of control of the citizens. Now, people in the West shrug their shoulders. But we give away our data anyhow, don't care very much. And we say, oh, it's only to tech companies. But most people underestimate the connection between tech companies and governments. Snowden had made that very clear for the US and the UK, not 
just for China. And also, uh, there are big data brokers like Axiom, who claim to have data about most of us, and maybe a thousand data points. And that could be just put together into a social credit score. We are not far away from that, I would say. It's just the Chinese are open about it, and we are secret. The title of the book is How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. So what are the things that we should do so that we are aware of these things, we are aware of these risks, uh, and we mitigate uh, and we act now so that these risks can be avoided? Yeah. So there are a number of things to be done. There are very simple things that everyone can do, like learn lateral reading or click restraint. Don't click at the first search entry, as still 50% people do, because they believe it's the most relevant for me or the most popular for everyone. No, it's the one where Google or Facebook or whoever expects the highest revenue from the advertisements. So that's the first thing, yeah? to learn a few things. Yeah? And <clears throat> this, <clears throat> the general thing is, to don't lean back and think, oh, it's great easy to be in a digital world. Yes, it's a wonderful world, but you need to, you need to get smart and not only the technology. Otherwise you, you are already the product on many, you get even more the product. And then there's a political dimension. It's very important that governments step in and protect their citizens against uh, the ideas of a few very rich people, mostly men, who control the tech companies and try to change the world in a way they think it is the best for them. So we need politicians who uh, protect us, who, for instance, hmm, find a way to stop the business model, pay with your data, find a legal way. And that can be done, that corrects some of the problems. Also, to stop uh, the, the practice that privacy policies are so long and so difficult to read by purpose. That one study found that among the 500 most visited sites in the US, like Uber, uh, for, out of 500, 498 privacy policies are written in a way that the average American cannot understand that. That's by purpose. That's a matter of dignity. If you have the choice, either to blindly accept or spend lots of time in order to decipher something that is by purpose written so that you can't understand. Here, governments need to step in. And the EU has done that. And uh, Facebook and Google have changed immediately and made their privacy policy shortened by a half, roughly. And so there are a number of things that governments can do that people can do. And the uh, so and at the end we need to bring back the old dream of the internet. So in the 1990s, when the internet got slowly popular to most of us, many dreamt of a world, a new world a paradise even, yeah? where everyone has access to the tree of truthful information, which would stop hmm, what we had then and still have. Yeah? The lies of politicians, corruption, and all and most other evils, because the idea was that now everyone can see through what's going on in the world. And that dream has in part become reality 
we have now many more opportunities, but also the paradise has become polluted. And what we need, we want back the original dream. We don't want the internet to become a matter of mainly advertisement and personalized advertisement. That's the key problem. For advertising per se, you don't need so much information about us. And we want to have the internet as something where we can trust not being misled, not being uh, getting recommendations just because some advertiser has bid more than other advertisers on us. And it can be done. And we have a few remains of the old dream. Wikipedia is one. So the dream that people get together and create something together, not with commercial purposes. And we should also remember that our lives and our souls are not for sale. There's more than advertising in our world. I think this is a fantastic statement. Very appropriate, perhaps, to close this conversation. Professor Gerd Gegerinzer, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.